seated. The Lord only knows what uh, it will be like to stand in His presence and sing on that day. But this not biblical, but just my thoughts often run in worship and private worship. I think, I think it, it might be that as we gather around the throne, that the best of the worship music of every tribe and every tongue and every language will be sung. I don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. But I can tell you this. In all the English language, there is no greater hymn than what we just sang. It mirrors and reflects the heart of God for his worship. And so uh, I just long for the day that we can all stand in our section, our small section of Grace Fellowship in the kingdom, revealed with all the tribes of all the people, and just sing it to the top of our lungs that God is holy, holy, holy. And we want to celebrate him today. We want to sing about him today, right? And we want to preach his word and proclaim his glorious gospel. And uh, as we do that, I want to ask prayer, go before the Lord and pray. Father, we come now to this moment, in this time, in this place with these people, and we have worshipped you as best we can with the voices that you have given us. And we trust that they have been received into your throne room this morning by the blood of Jesus, sanctified by the Spirit. And pleasing before your before you that like a sweet aroma joining with all of our brothers and sisters around the world your praise is bringing you great joy this morning you are a holy God and yet you are an eminently near to us God and we want to see it in your passage today in your word help us now as we look at it Help us not to see with earthly eyes, but to see with the eyes of our hearts the truth that is contained in these words, these true words that you have brought to us through your spirit and the pen of your writer, Luke, help us to know you now. It's in your name we pray, amen. Take your Bible and turn to Acts 17, and I want to begin to read in verse 16, Corey preached a, a, a great sermon on how the Jews at Thessalonica were unbound by the scripture. And we saw the destruction that comes from being living a life that is unbound, having a religion that is unbound to the word of God. Then uh, last week, Ryan Limbaugh delivered uh, a tremendous sermon on being bound to the scripture. And he, as he dipped back into the old covenant like Paul would have done, and just brought forth text after text. And, you know, I told him this week, the thing is, is that the texts that he brought forth were so clear, weren't they? They obviously are pointing us to Christ. But he and I agree on this, that he could have literally gone to the Old Testament anywhere. Anywhere. And Paul did. And Jesus did. Anywhere and everywhere. And preached Jesus Christ him crucified and raised from the dead. And when we read the Old Covenant, bound by 
the fact that we have know that Christ is coming, we know that the gospel has been delivered, we too go back into those Old Testament passages and we clearly see what is so obviously there, and that is that God has been working to redeem his people from all time. And now we come, so we've seen two sermons that were preached, one in Thessalonica and then uh, one to the Bereans, and now we turn to a very different passage, Paul in Athens. And I want to bring a sermon entitled, Methods Matter. Methods Matter. Look with me at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In the Greek, resurrection is a female ending. And so they were thinking the deity Jesus and the deity resurrection. The God, male God, and the female God. That's, that's how confused these people were. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're preaching or presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very superstitious, would be a good translation, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not, not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, <clears throat> we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
We have in front of us a text very different from the two texts before it. And it's some, in some ways a hinge point in the text of Acts. Because Paul has already ministered to Gentiles, but this is by far the longest speech that we have recorded for us of his presenting the gospel to the Gentiles. And I've never been to this place. I was telling Aaron last night, we were texting, I would love to stand and see the beauty of this place and the sight that Paul would have seen. It's still there today. But I have been in a similar situation. As I prepared this week, I thought back to 2009 when Amy and I journeyed to Beijing, China and to do some uh, cultural analysis because we were bringing Lily home. And so we walked around the city with a guide for a week. And the main places that we went were temples. I stood in the oldest temple in Beijing um, to Buddha. The oldest wooden Buddha in the world, the largest wooden Buddha in the world, presented to the emperor by the Tibetans, carved with their own hands, placed on a cart, hauled by donkeys across. If you want to look this, this afternoon at the length of travel that they did from Tibet to Beijing to present their God to the emperor. And it was placed in a temple, a beautiful temple, orbital temple built around it, courtyards open, big trees growing, bells ringing, lots of colors flashing. As we walked through those gates with our guide, she would stop at every station and she would pray. And she would go and offer incense at the altar. I've stood in a place like this. You know, not just there, but the Temple of Heaven, which is uh, one of the most beautiful parks in Beijing. Open air, it's round. Uh, the center of it is rounded, uh, painted by hand you know, thousand, over a thousand years ago in worship to their God. And then we traveled to Lily's home province. A little country place, a place where they did olives and they did coal and every building you went in had the Buddhas and had the bells. And we traveled to her home city in Jinching, a new city, 1985, small out of the way place, about five and a half million people. It doesn't measure in the Chinese world as that big. It's kind of small. Same thing. Every store, every place, every building blessed with the Buddha. On the eaves, they had the many gods. And on the inside are the many protectors of the gods. And on the inside, you stepped over the threshold, they had the bell. And they had the statues just inside the courtyard. They offered incense. Fresh incense burnt all the time before their gods. Some of you have had similar experiences. Some of you have never seen anything like this. One thing I can say, though never having been where Paul was exactly, I can say this. Some of the most beautiful people in the world live in China. And they live in palpable darkness. It's not something you see. 
is something you feel. When you stand in a place where Jesus Christ has never been preached. Now in Beijing, there were churches. And so there was more light there. But when we moved into the countryside, into her home province, into her home city, there were no churches. There were no Christians that we knew of. Our guides didn't know of any much. Unheard of in that place in dark. I'll never forget getting on a subway or a train and... It's, I'm, I'm like an NBA star there because even at six foot, six foot one, you're a giant. And I'm towering above a sea of black-haired heads. And we've just been in some places of cultural uh, prominence, as they would call them. And I just remember looking and seeing them. Really seeing them. And just beginning to cry. To weep, to feel in my heart that if God doesn't do something miraculous, everyone on this train will go to hell. Everyone. And so our text says that Paul's heart was provoked. The reason it was provoked is because he was on a mission. The first thing I want you to see in this text is that Paul was on a mission. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus had told the apostles, Go to the upper room and wait, and the Holy Spirit will come, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was the mission given by Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, God tells uh, the, the, uh, Ananias, he tells him, he says, there's a man praying. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Go to him. For he is my chosen vessel to preach the gospel among the Gentiles and the Jews to kings and people of high position. And I must tell him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And so he went to Paul and Paul's blind at that moment because he's seen the great light and he's initially responded to the gospel. And the first thing that is said to him after fasting for three days completely, no food, no drink, and he comes in the room and the first thing he says is, you are chosen by God Almighty to take my message to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles, the Jews, the kings, the people of high position. But listen to me. You will suffer. I've got to show you how much you will suffer for my name's sake. And we think about his beatings. And we think about his shipwreck. And we think about his near starvation. And we think about the crowds and the mobs and the ridicule that he faced in public. But I want you to see in verse 16 that one of Paul's greatest sufferings is that he walked into places like Athens and his heart was rent in two because they did not know who the Son of God is is we are so materialistic that we think his greatest suffering was lashes across the back and I'm saying his greatest suffering was the turmoil inwardly that God's name wasn't being proclaimed and that Jesus' gospel had not gone forth and that everyone in this place as religious and superstitious as they are will die and go to hell if a bomb goes off now I know he didn't think about a bomb because there was no such thing as such in his day but I think about it. You know, 
something cataclysmic happens and everyone dies in an earthquake, they're all gone eternally. This word provoke, we often think about anger, and anger is there, but it's not the kind of anger we think of. It's not the kind of anger where you go in and flip the whole place upside down and you're pitching a fit and even in righteous indignation. It's not that. The, the, the best way to look at it is the way God looks at idolatry in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, this is the very Greek word used in the Septuagint and translation of the Hebrew text to talk about how God feels about people worshiping idols rather than him. Brokenness is included. The feeling of brokenness. Anxiety can be included in this word. Anger can be included in this word. Pity can be included in this word. It's, he was stirred up, some of your translations might say, he was stirred up. Not looking at them, slamming his fist, but looking at them with tears. I imagine him walking through Athens with tears, going into the, the marketplace, the Agora, with tears. Going up to Areopagus with tears, broken hearted. That God wasn't being reverenced and that these people are, have no hope outside of him. His mission drove him to have a heart rent into because the name of Christ was not proclaimed in these places. It drove him, didn't it? I mean, we find Paul saying things like, I long to preach the gospel where it has not yet been preached. He would deliver the gospel and the church would get started and he'd be like, see you. Gone. Why? Because he was driven to the ends of the earth. Matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul's going to say that he proclaimed the gospel in all of the known world of his time, the civilized world in his time. He proclaimed it in the Middle East, what we think of as Palestine, he proclaimed it in Asia Minor, he proclaimed it in Greece, he proclaimed it in Europe, in Rome, Macedonia, the known world, the empire. Paul was driven with such a heart on the mission that everything in his life was being poured into this one objective. And so I'm asking a question this morning, Grace Fellowship. Coming to this place is great. We need to be in this place. But when, what does our life look like in this world in which we live? Because, see, we tend to think about this world that we live in is different from the world they lived in. But as Ryan Limbaugh said this week in our prep time on Tuesday, these are the original postmoderns, these people in Athens. Postmodernity is not new. This is still the old thing. Why do we say that? Because look at the text. They reason, he was reasoning in the synagogue, and he moves from there <clears throat> into the marketplace, the agora. Both the Roman and the Greek markets walking back and forth, most likely, looking at the statues and the idols and seeing the people there, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers having these long conversations with all of their students gathered around them like they were really something to be listened to. Athens was the seat of culture. In the ancient world. It was where democracy got its start. It was the one place in, in Greece that repelled uh, a- external attack from uh, ever falling. And they were able to maintain the republic. And, and it's there that, that great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle called home. It was the birthplace of Epicureanism and Stoicism. 
It was the great art center of the world. The great trades came there to ply their trades, build their statues, and get approval from the Athenian people. They had some of the greatest handcrafted gods on the planet. All right there. They had great temples. It was a magnificent city. And Paul on a mission goes into this soup of superstition. Religion, yes, but more than that, it was superstition, really. That they were bantering, bantering about all day, every day, longing to hear something new, something new, something new. The Epicureans believed in the pursuit of pleasure. The Stoics believed in a living life by reason. And the two were like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They sat together near one another, and you could probably hear their great oratory going back and forth, and everyone was trying to decide what is truth. I mean, I can hear them now, can't you? It's like our day, sitting around, what is truth? Is there truth? Is there a reality? I mean, your reality and my reality are different things. You know, you're a Stoic. I'm an Epicurean. Let's just live life together. Eat, drink, be married for today. We are and tomorrow we're not. You could hear these great philosophy worldviews being spoken and it's into this soup that the mission that Paul was on he finds himself there and and I'll just make note it doesn't appear that that was his his initial plan I think that he was sidetracked as he left Berea he was run out of town there by all the rabble-rousers you remember and in verse 15 it says those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens so they were taking him probably back to the mainland, and they stop in Athens, and then they, he sends them back to get Silas and Timothy. So this kind of a detour. But here's what I want us to see by that. A man or a woman on the mission that God has given us, which, by the way, is the same mission that Paul had to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our call, Christian. God's telling us to do that. To be his witness in your neighborhood, in your place of business, in your sports events, in your civic uh, uh, engagements, preach the gospel. You're on a mission. He was sidetracked or detoured, and he finds himself in Athens. He doesn't go buy coffee and sit and overlook the beautiful peaks, which would have been a nice thing to do. The, the, the Mediterranean is a beautiful place. What does he do? He immediately picks up and goes through and starts to analyze and think about the culture that he's in and to begin to be provoked inwardly so that he could preach the gospel effectively to these people. How is it with us? How is it with us here in the United States where everybody is in some type of new thought, whether it's conservative thought or liberal thought or libertarian thought or in the political world or whether it's uh, eating uh, fresh foods that will help our bodies not be downgraded like the processed foods will, or you're a processed person eating lots of pizza saying, I'm checking out in 50 years anyway, so what does it matter? People working out all the time, people never working out. People have ideas and philosophies about finance and sports and activities and how you should raise your family and what you should be giving your life to. Everybody's got an idea. And there's something new every day. I would tell you to get on Twitter, but it's a cesspool like all the others. But if you get on there for just an hour or two, you'll see there's new idea, new idea, new idea, new idea. We sound a lot like the Athenians. But you know what our response has been, Grace Fellowship, is to withdraw and retreat from these people. And Paul's response, because he was on a mission, was to go get in the middle of their talk. 
and to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't retreat or run away because they were really smart people. And he was just this country bumpkin that listened to the Merle Haggard of his day, in my opinion, because it's great music. And he was in Saul of Tarsus, this uneducated babbler, as they call him. You know, the babbler, that word really means a seed picker. <laughs> he goes to make his presentation. We think about him being well-reasoned, like, oh, Paul's a titanic mind. And he went up there, and they're like, this guy just bounces around, pulls ideas out of the thin air, and just takes what he wants and scavenges here and there from philosophies. They didn't understand him because the world's not going to understand you. The world's not going to respect you. The world's not going to think you're really smart. The world's not going to think you're really refined. The world's not going to put you in a high place and say, oh, look at the wisdom of God on presentation. They're going to look at you and say, you're a fool. And only people on a mission will continue at that point. Everybody else packs it up, compromises, and finds a way to get along. Paul wasn't discouraged because they called him a scavenger, because they said he had these weird ideas that he seemed to be plucking out from here and there and everywhere. Paul used the opportunity that they wanted to hear something new to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is what our text says, so that they grabbed him, not in a violent way, and said, come on, buddy, you need to go up to the court at Areopagus and speak to our city leaders. I can only imagine that Paul's heart was like, yes, <laughs> awesome. We're going to go sit down with the leaders of these people and preach the gospel. The mission determined why he was there and what he was doing. But he also had a message, and we see it in the second paragraph. So Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus, the city council of their day, the rulers, and he began to preach to them. But I want you to notice something about this. I read it earlier, so I'm not going to read it again. Did you feel the difference in the way he talked here versus Thessalonica and some of the Jewish places where he spoke? Notice what's absent in this speech. Now, granted, this was probably a three-hour lecture. An average lecture at the Areopagus was three hours. I say Paul went at least average because he's known to preach so long people fall asleep and fall to their death. <laughs> he resuscitates them and goes back and preaches. So he was no short-winded preacher. So if their three hours was what they're going to give him, he'd take probably all three hours. So we don't have it all. That's not all contained right here. What we have is like an outline of the major topics which he covered in his speech. But it's starkly different from the Jewish speech in the synagogue. Gone are the old covenant references. Why? Why wouldn't he just quote the Old Testament? Paul, just, you're compromising. And Paul would say, no, I have a message. I'm going to preach the message. He didn't, he didn't void the message. He didn't go in there and philosophize with them and fail to get to Jesus. No, he preached Jesus and the resurrection among these people. But the, but the message is contained in a method, and the method matters. The method really matters. Why did Luke record these three instances this way? One reason is because I think he wants us to see that Paul was all things to all men that some might be saved. 
Some of you have no hearing with your relatives or your neighbors or the people that you do life with because you refuse to see them for who they are, hear what they're saying, and speak the truth into their life where it like intersects with them. You're talking over here, they're talking over there, everybody goes away confused. Paul said, no, no, you have this statue to the unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I want to declare to you. What an introduction. What an introduction. This God that he speaks of, that they had, is not the same as the God that he speaks of, but he intersects with their world where they are. He doesn't talk high language of the old covenant with them because they never knew the old covenant. Most of them probably had no idea about the old covenant. And so, hey, he started there. He's talking at a whole nother level. It makes no sense to them. It's called contextualizing the message. Now, we got to be clear about this because there's some people that get uneasy about this. And I want to I put you at ease. Paul was the best context or contextualizer that I've ever known. 1 Corinthians 9, if you need a reference, is Paul's philosophy on how to preach the gospel to all kinds of people. He was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, and John Stott says he was the Hellenist of the Hellenists. He flowed between the worlds because his objective was not to spread some local deity and local religion but to talk about the Lord God Almighty of heaven and earth who rules and reigns and created it all. Too many of us have gotten into tribal thought. My way's the right way, and I'm going to talk this way no matter where I am and who I'm with because I'm not going to compromise. No, you're not going to compromise, and you're going to be like a sounding brass and a clanging gong, and they just move on. Some of us sound too much like the political talking heads and not enough like the Apostle Paul. We won't be able to have a conversation with the people of our day because we're too busy hating them, not hating idolatry. Paul hated idolatry. His heart was broken for the idolaters. We're not trying to convert people to some localized way of thinking. We're calling them to bow their knee to the God of heaven and earth. Paul does it effectively. To God who made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He cannot live in temples made by hands of men. Nor is he served by men as if he need anything. Now these words sound a lot like the Old Testament. But he's giving no prophetic uh, 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 introduction. He's not saying the Word of God says this and the Word of God says that. He's just infiltrating the idea, the truth, into a form that they hear it. And they're willing to keep listening. Life that he gives them to all mankind. Life, breath, and everything. He's preaching about him being the creator and the sovereign of all things. He then moves to sustaining. He gives them life and breath and everything. He's the one who sustains you. This is key because the Stoics 
believed there was a God that was out there somewhere with no relation to mankind. And the Epicureans knew there was probably a God, but they didn't really know if he was with them or whatever. They were very material and pleasure-driven. And Paul spoke to them and said, He gives you your life, your breath, your movement, and everything you have. This Lord, I'm preaching to you. Notice he moves from creator, and then he begins to talk about sin. Now you say, well, he doesn't use the word sin. No, he doesn't, but look what he does. He says that God gave mankind the earth to live on, and he determined and allotted for them their places, which is the, human, the, human, the places humans can habit. I'm not sure, it could be that he's talking about national boundaries, but more than that, it's the places in the earth that are good to live in. Believe it or not, there's some places not really good for life. Not really good for life. And when the polar vortex, or whatever they call it these days, comes down, we start to realize, like, that ain't real good for life. (laughs) Who would live at North Pole? God didn't put us up there. Thank God, right? And we're just saying, take it back. You can have it. He determined where man would live, and he allotted periods for them of kingdoms and things that would go on in the world historically. It has a purpose. What's the purpose? That they should seek God. He put them where they are, and he gave them their history so that they would seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him. This is a reference to the to the Greek myth of the Cyclops, which was blinded and then was trying to get out of the cave, most people believe, and he couldn't find his way out. And he's saying, you're like that Cyclops that was blinded and could not see his way out. And you were groping for something you didn't even know if it existed or it didn't exist. You were all kinds of darkness here. This is sin. He presents to them what sin is. You're separated from God. You're groping, but you can't find him. Yet he's near to you. And now he quotes two of their own philosophers. But look what he does in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, stone, images formed by art of imagination of man. He attacks their, <laughs> their artisans. The times of ignorance God overlooked. You people think you're wise, but God has determined that you are ignorant. And God has overlooked it. Not that he's forgotten it, but he's passed by until this time. Look what he says. But now he commands Everyone, everywhere, repent. Repentance had been the message for the Jews from the Old Covenant. But now at the cross, God breaks the boundaries down between Jew and Gentile. And now it's time for the Gentiles to repent. Not that there weren't any Gentile repenters in the Old Covenant. But by and large, the Old Testament shows us that the Gentile world was locked in utter darkness. And idolatry and hedonism. The barbarians and Paul's saying, now God's not overlooking you, but he's calling on you to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge. He's presented God as creator. He's talked about man as the creation. God is the sustainer. God God has uh, presented them with himself in such a way that they're feeling and groping to get back to him, but they can't find him, and now he's holding them accountable, and finally he presents to them judgment. There's a day coming on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This sermon is not a compromise in any way. But it's also not tone deaf to the audience with with which he's having a conversation. 
And Grace Fellowship, we've got to stop being tempted to be tone deaf and call it faithful. Tone deafness is not faithful. Refusing to know the world we live in is not faithful. Saying people can only hear it my way, and if they won't hear it my way, they can go to hell. That's what you're saying. The Apostle Paul was provoked by a righteous indignation, which drove him to heart-rended, heartbroken, preach the gospel to the audience he was talking to, not to the audience he wanted to talk to. Not the audience he created in his mind. But look what he did. He did not compromise the truth. He does not syncretize God with the local deities. He finds the jumping off spot and he runs to Jesus. You see the difference? We, we need to be smart enough to know when, when we're, falling, we're failing to uphold Christ. Some of you have been in great relationships talking about all the latest podcasts and political ideas and all these things, and you've yet to mention Jesus. But when someone talks in front of you about sharing the gospel a way that you're not comfortable with sharing it, you want to quarterback them and tell them how to share the gospel. That's sinful. You need to share the gospel. Sometimes the people trying the hardest to get the message to the masses of people in our world are critiqued the most. And I'm sitting there thinking like, they're, they're preaching the gospel. Now, if they're not preaching the gospel, yes, let's, let's be clear. But sometimes our view of the way we can preach the gospel is so narrow. So narrow. And Paul's was not narrow. He would not have preached this way in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, later on he doesn't. He wouldn't have preached this way in Rome, maybe. But in this place, at this time, with these people, he wouldn't have preached the gospel. He also is not using a method just because it will gain great hearing. I want to be clear about that. The method matters. He's not compromising and he's not changing the message so he can get some followers. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to write the response. Most of the people there that day laughed at him. They mocked him. Some said, we want to hear you again. And I find it interesting, don't you? Look what the next word is in the text. So Paul left. They said, we want to hear from you again. Paul said, I preach the gospel. You have the truth. He moved on. And a couple of names are mentioned here. Now, we're not to believe these are the only two converts that day, but a couple of names are mentioned. Matter of fact, Dionysius has a church building there named after him in, in Athens. Why does the Holy Spirit record these responses? Because the method was not determined because it was practically uh, wise and because it was pragmatically successful. But it was chosen because it was the best way to proclaim the truth on that day to those people in that place. How they received it, Paul, Paul wasn't, knew he wasn't in charge of. That's God's business. 
And I believe it's sovereignly recorded for us, not just here, but it's a pattern throughout Acts that the responses are recorded not because the apostles thought, well, we, only, we gave an altar call, we only had two people respond. we got to change up how we're doing this. They didn't do that. They didn't judge their success by how people were outwardly responding. They judged their success by whether they were faithful to proclaim the message to the people in front of them in a way that the people could hear it, and then God did the rest. Some responded with laughter. Some responded with, we'd love to hear from you again. Others said, we believe in Jesus. But Paul chose wisely. And I want to encourage us as we close. We must learn to choose wisely how we approach people with the gospel. First of all, we need to be on a mission. If you're sitting here today and you say, like, I've not shared the gospel ever. I've been a Christian for some time. I've not shared the gospel ever in my life. May I just encourage you to share the gospel. Proclaim the name of Jesus. Well, I'm not sure I know exactly how to do this and that. It's okay. Once you start opening your mouth and proclaiming the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit and the body of the church will come around you, and you'll get better at it. But listen to this. You won't ever be good at it. Just when you think you're getting good, you'll have a conversation that's totally deflating. And this is the way it will probably go. You will do a jam-up job. Like, you will say this. As you're in your head, I, this happens to me. I'm preaching the gospel to somebody, and I'm like, this is so awesome. I am doing so good. My goodness, this is going to be, I mean, this person may be the next Billy Graham. I'm so good at this. And that's the very person that looks at me stone-faced and says, that's foolish in some form or fashion. And I walk away and get in the car, and I'm like, God, come on. I gave you a lot to work with. <laughs> and the Word of God says he doesn't share his glory with anybody. Some of you will be the best evangelist because you have very little clue, except you just know that once I was blind and now I see. And get on mission and start sharing the gospel. All of a sudden, these people start coming to Christ. And people be like, how are you doing this? You're like, I don't know, man. It's so awesome. I keep just reading the Bible. Like, people get saved. It's powerful. I don't know. Then we'll put you in a training class. We'll get you well-trained, and you'll be a failure the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Techniques, guys, are not what I'm talking about when I talk about methods. Listen to me. The Word of God needs no help, and the Spirit of God is the line of heaven. He'll go get His. Don't worry. Get on mission. Preach the gospel. And some of you are on the mission, and you're preaching to a lot of frustration because you're speaking past the people you're speaking to. And I just want to encourage you. Keep speaking and start really praying hard to understand the people you're talking to. To know them, to care about them, to have a passion for them. To have your spirit provoked inside of you when you're around them. By the Spirit of God, 
Because at that moment, you will become very contextual, very effective, and they will hear the gospel. How they respond is not your business. It's not how you measure it. I think about this in relation as I close to uh, my friend Ryan Limbaugh. And I didn't ask him if I could talk about him because I'm going to talk good about him, and I figure he won't mind that. Uh, Ryan Limbaugh is a missionary to our community, and we're blessed to have him at Grace Fellowship. And if you've ever met Ryan, he is an intense dude. And he, he's been one of my best friends for over 20 years now. And listen, if you want to know what it looks like to like, be intentional and live on mission, I just commend to you, not some national name somewhere, some evangelist. There's plenty of those. I'm talking about one of our own. He is intentional. He Every relationship, his mind is running with how do I preach the gospel? And once they've come to Christ, how do I help them grow in Christ? And how do I get them plugged into the mission? How do I do it? And he's constantly brainstorming this way. And so Ryan and I don't do things the same way a lot. We don't. And yet I go and sit and he offers an altar call. Like it's a, it's a beautiful thing. He literally tells students sometimes like, don't close your eyes. There's no soft music playing. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, stand up. Not like bow your head, raise your hand, put your hand down, raise your hand. None of that stuff. Not manipulation. Just stand up right now. Okay, you stood up. All right. All of y'all get together right there. Start going through. Exchange numbers and start going through John together and, and texting one another about it because you need the scriptures and sign a card so we'll know who you are so we can get you hooked up with a pastor. It's like the most out there thing, right? Very intentional. You don't leave his, his meetings without, like, I'm not sure what to do with that. Like, that was really good, but I'm not sure. He's, he's intentional because he's on a mission. He's passionate. But let me tell you another story really quickly about another lady that was on mission in my life. I shared a story about her today, or the other day. Miss Black sat on the inside of the middle section of pews on the second row of my home church as long as I was alive. She was old when I was a baby. She was. When she died, her son found her journals. She prayed over 50 young men into the gospel ministry. Our church commissioned over 50 men during her time. She prayed for every single one of them. And not only did she pray that they would go in the ministry, she prayed specifically for them after they were in the ministry and gone. She just kept praying for them. So you may be sitting here at the other end of the spectrum, and you're like, I'm older, and I don't have a lot of contact with anybody, and I'm just not useful to the mission anymore. Be on mission. Pray. Plead with God to raise up young leaders. We've been blessed with young leaders in this church that we are doing everything we can to wrap our arms around them and help them grow. We need you to pray because we are fools and don't know what we're doing. And they are foolish and don't know what they're doing. And we need you to pray, church. We need you to plead with God and be on mission with us. And some of you will play the part of the evangelist in the coffee shop, and some of you will do it at your workplace, and some of you will pray people to go 
and that God would send them into the harvest field. We all have a job to do, church, every single one of us. Be on the gospel mission, proclaiming the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, and let the method fit the moment so that God gets all the glory. So that God gets all the glory. So I want us to pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this time, I'm just going to give a space of about 30 seconds. Because there's zero people in this room that don't need to respond. Everybody needs to respond. Every Christian here, every lost person here needs to respond. So I ask God during this time of silence that you would work in their hearts to get them in the place of being on mission with you. Now, Father, as we have prayed to ourselves and committed to you our lives and confessed our sins, our, our fears, our anxieties about being on mission, of speaking the message, God, I pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of your people in this place, that they would begin to share with one another, talk over these things together. Father, that we might together be joined and fit in a proper way to preach your good news till you come again and in the end we might be matured into our head which is Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior to you alone belongs all glory and honor in this place forevermore amen we're going to take there's no communion okay no communion today <laughs> uh, all right well curveball change let me just take this space to talk about communion for just a moment because you know we've been doing it now since the first of the year each and every week and we had planned to do it this week and then also next week February 28th but uh, and we will do it February 28th after that what we're going to do uh, we told you we would be talking about it and thinking through it some more praying about it and what what we've decided to do is to go back to having communion the last Sunday of the month um, each Sunday, though, there will be a unique way, a different way, various ways that we will respond to what we have heard in God's Word. Sometimes that will be singing. Sometimes that will be prayer. Sometimes 